At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields related to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some important issues of our times. Bill McDorman is the executive director of Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance in Ketchum, Idaho. He got his start in the bioregional seed movement while in college in 1979 when he helped start Garden City Seeds. In 1984, he started Seeds Trust High Altitude Gardens, a mail-order seed company he ran successfully until he sold it in 2013. He authored the book Basic Seed Saving in 1994. Then in 2010, he and his wife, Belle Starr, created Seed School, a nationally recognized week-long training. Bill is a passionate and knowledgeable presenter who inspires his audiences to learn to save their own seeds. Welcome, Bill. Welcome, everybody that is taking some time out of their day to be part of this discussion. I really appreciate it. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, we do this monthly, and then we also make these into a podcast, so they get integrated into our podcast once a month. Usually on the day that we do the live event, we, we release last month's episode. And So thanks for doing that. We have been doing this, what now, for about four years or something outrageous like that. Well, it goes fast, but it sure has been good. And it's, you know, it's kind of a unique thing that we can keep up on, on topics and stuff. And along those lines, that's kind of why we're doing tonight's topic on GMOs. And this is not, I hope, going to, uh, you know, be a discussion about people getting angry, either one side or the other. What this is about is new information. There is a flood of new information about techniques for genetically modifying a policy level in the U.S. government about even integrating it into organic agriculture. So it's just, if we can just ask questions and educate ourselves about this issue more deeply and, and use tonight's show to try to do that, then I think we'll all be better off because it's a deep, as we were talking before the show, Greg, this is really a deep subject and it we're is. not going to do it all tonight, but we'll leave you lots of links and resources to go on and find some information in some of the areas we talk about tonight. So yeah, yeah. yeah it could be so, and, and the first thing I said to you, Bill, because I've, I've studied transgenic GMOs for, you know, since the early 90s when they came out, they came on my radar. And so I said to you, well, we need to define transgenic. And you said. Yeah, well, transgenic is old news. Transgenic right. is what genetic modification has been in most of the crops that have been released up to now, not all of them even. And so now there's new techniques. So me, that we're going to talk about. Let me just jump yeah, in. That, Transgenic basically means that they're taking a gene from one species, like a fish, and putting it into a tomato. That was done, among other a bunch mm -hmm. of other crazy things. Okay, I don't have an opinion about that, but <laughs> and and 
Also, what I said to you before we came on the air, what I said was that I don't necessarily know that genetically modifying things is a bad thing. It might be. It might not. The biggest challenge I have and the biggest problem I have with it is that it's being done without research. And then they put it out in the public domain where things like you know, hybrid mosquitoes happen, like like happened down yeah. in Brazil. I read an article the other day that the a company released half a million male that were supposed to be sterile, hybrid, genetically modified, They're genetically modified, yeah, mosquitoes to help control the mosquito population. And guess what? That those yeah, genes they're... got they they got bred. They they were supposed to be sterile. They weren't. They got bred. And you know, basically the the attitude is, oh, oh well. And so there's there's major consequences that come when something like that happens. So that's my big challenge with genetically modified. You you mean male and female mosquitoes went off and had sex when they weren't supposed to? <laughs> well, they were supposed to. But, How could that happen? <laughs> yeah, they were supposed to be sterile. So, um. <laughs> oops. And maybe that you know maybe we need more humor in this whole thing. Maybe and maybe that's the root of the problem is that we don't know what's going to happen. And as much as we try to predict what we're doing on this level, it is it has so many variables that it's just really hard to predict. And, you know, you talk about research. I mean, there I think there are a lot of people that would argue that the research is in, the science is in, right? They're safe. We know what we're doing. That 99.9% of all scientists um, that have done peer-reviewed papers say that eating genetically modified food is okay, the ones that have studied it, and that the techniques themselves are safe. Yeah, I read that all the time. But the problem with that, and this is, I just wanted to give a little context to it, because, you know, unless you're into reading your own peer-reviewed papers, you know, we've got to take the word of other people that do that sort of summarize this information. But I had occasion this last fall to be uh, to hear the dean of the School of Agriculture at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And I asked him a very specific question about the research being done at the University of Arizona. And one could argue that all of it in and around agriculture has something to do now with biotech, with genetic modification or gene editing on some level. And not all of it, but a lot of it is. And so I asked him how much of his budget, the entire research budget at the University of Arizona in the ag department is discretionary. In other words, how much do they get to decide at the university what they're going to study, what they're going to use it for? And he thought for a minute, this was at a public forum, and he said, oh, my guess is, you know, I might get corrected later, but my guess is around 4%. So what that means, if you think about it, is that 96 Ninety-six percent of the research in agriculture at the University of Arizona is determined by the people who donate the money to have the research done. And you can look through the list. It's the Gates Foundation. It's companies and foundations. Primarily, I, I could be getting out here a bit, but primarily support biotech and its promises. And so can you imagine being a student at the University of Arizona and say, hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to slow this down. I want to do a study that might prove that, say, these mosquitoes will get out and start breeding. I know that goes against everything else we're doing here, but I think it's scientifically possible. Can I get money to do that research? His paper proves that what they're doing with 96% of the other money is wrong. Think about how, how well that would fly, right? I mean, to lose 96% of your other funding. And so if you'll just take that picture and double-click and expand it to the whole United States, we have all the peer-reviewed papers. We have all this research and science. But guess what, folks? 
it may not be objective. It may be 96 or more percent funded by the people who will benefit from a certain outcome. And that's my only question about it now is I don't think we have enough information about all of this to proceed at the speed at which we're proceeding. So that's sort of my introductory, why I'm cautious personally about all of this. So the other part that you went into after I said, well, what about transgenic? And you said, well, that's old news. You went into, well, what's next? So what what are you finding that is next? Well, that the, the revolution that's happening worldwide is a new technology called CRISPR. In the past, I've memorized what it means to. It's an acronym. Basically, what it does is they found a little piece of RNA that acts as scissors for them so that they can insert this into genes and have more technical fine control over what happens to genes in an organism, in a cell than they've ever had before. It take, you know, when we started transgenics, the, literally the first gene gun was powered by a 22 caliber bullet and they would shoot the genes into a petri dish and explode it and actually shoot new genes into cells. It's really messy. Lots of collateral damage, lots of unintended consequences. Then they found out that they could actually send new genes in on a virus, and that was really good for a while. And then they had a zinc nuclease. They found a way to do it. And in each of these steps, it got cheaper, got easier, but it was still a hugely complicated laboratory procedure. Now with um, CRISPR, they say $35 worth of time and energy in a laboratory with these new techniques and anybody can start to do genetic modification on some levels. And the easiest level of that, as I was talking about, isn't to bring new genes in, but just to snip and take out or turn off genes, in a sense, that are in a cell, that are operational. And so instead of calling it GMOs, genetic modification, the new buzzword, and you may have heard this, is gene editing. You know, and I just read today where um, the first gene editing would be like you had a word processor and you could go in and change dots and commas in a word here and there. Now they can do whole paragraphs. Just recently, they've had some breakthroughs. This is starting to change in real time. If you, if you haven't looked today about what's going on, then you're not up to date kind of a, a subject. And so this is going to unleash unbelievable amount of changes. And so some of them have already come to market. And people don't even know about them because, and and it's changed the regulatory environment. So uh, companies came before the USDA and they argued that a couple of their new products, there's actually three that I know of that are on the market now. Those are Arctic apples. There's a potato that's being sold by Simplot and there's a mushroom that's being sold. In all of three of those cases, the USDA decided with the company that they did not need to be approved as genetically modified organisms. Why? Because the, there was no transgenic. There were no genes brought in from somewhere else. They were simply edited. And what they edited was the gene that causes the browning in all three of those things. So, you know, when you cut an apple open and leave it on your, or a potato or a mushroom and leave it on your counter for a while, it turns brown. That's an oxidation process. And there's an enzyme that causes that. Well, they found a way to turn off that gene, the the gene that produces that enzyme. And so USDA said, oh, wow, you don't have to go through all the testing and all the regulatory. This sounds great. You can just do this. And so that has given this huge impetus to take this new easy off the shelf in a sense. And it's not easy, that easy, and it's not off the shelf. 
But you can take a course online and learn how to do it. And there's lots of courses in it. And there are high school courses that are doing it. And so it is way easier than it was. And there's learning to gene edit and opening uh, in what I would call Pandora's box into all sorts of new things that will start to hit the market. And under our current administration, which would like to see two regulations removed for every new one, it's not likely that there's going to be any, you know, systematic review of the process or of these items, at least in the current future. So this, I think if you're scared or if you've been really concerned about GMOs or whatever, then this should really concern you. And I think it's time for us to get involved, maybe on a little bit different level. I don't know what to do yet except for to educate yourself. And so that's what this show is about. Is we're gonna, I'm going to open up some of these ideas around it, and we'll have some resources, and we'll see where this all goes into the future. Nice. Well, you mentioned a nice that we're going over this, and you mentioned that we there was a class that you could take. You said it was eleven dollars on CRISPR. Well, yeah, it's. Let me see if I can find it here. I tried to bring up the website. It is a course on CRISPR, and let me pull. I'll get the exact title for you if you want to Google it up right now. While you're doing that, I'm doing CRISPR definition. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah you know what good. comes up this first? Is... You know what comes up first? Nice. A compartment oh. at the bottom of your refrigerator if you're storing fruits and vegetables. <laughs> I, I love it. So this is called CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R slash Cas9, C-A-S9. This is one of the iterations of this new CRISPR technology. And it's called Crash Course for Beginners. And it's it's on a website, Udemy, and it's $18.99 right now. Mm-hmm. And the requirement, requirements are a desire to learn about CRISPR-Cas9, revolutionizing gene editing technology. And the number two requirement, you should have a passion to do your own CRISPR project. Okay? Oh, interesting. So, interesting. Yeah. So here's what I found out about Udemy. Udemy is a great take place to take classes. And if you uh-huh. go to the Udemy site, you know, the course might be $99, you know, give them your information and, right. and, and then don't sign up for it. And then what starts happening is that, well, you didn't want it for 99, you can have it for 79. And then, oh, then all of a sudden, start talking it. Okay. Yeah. so just a heads up about Udemy. They, they have a lot of interesting courses out there. So CRISPR is a wow. genetic engineering tool that uses CRISPR sequence of DNA, and that's C-R-I-S-P-R, sequence of DNA, and it's associated protein to edit the base pairs of a gene. Interesting. Yes. So I saw on Bloomberg News show the other night, they had an interview with the one, one, there's a controversy over who actually invented it. It's kind of like two different people did at the same time independently, and there's arguments over who Ooh, actually how that happens. Yeah. But she sees it changing everything that we do. And, you know, the, the questions come up. Should we be doing this? Should we be changing everything? And she said, oh, well, we'll leave that to the policy and the, the politicians. You know, that's not my job. I'm a scientist. And at that yeah. point, I would disagree. We're all humans. We all have responsibility. And I think that we need to have more of then these policy and ethical discussions in our science classes then. Because right now, the scientists coming out don't get that. You know, right. I think I've said on the show before, we had a high school teacher come to Native Seed Search when I was the director there, and they she brought her class to to tour the seed bank there, the beautiful seed bank, two thousand varieties of seeds, and she introduced herself, said this this class is actually a genetic engineering class in high school, 
And I go, wow, that's pretty amazing that you guys are heading into this in high school, in a high school science class. And I said, so I have a question. I raised my hand like I was in the class. And he goes, yes. And I said, so how much of your high school class is concerned with if we should modify? You know, if if it's ethically okay to do some of these techniques on certain things. And she looked at me like I was from a different planet and said, Bill, this is a science class. We don't, you know, that's totally out of our realm. We don't, that's not our job. And I it's think not an that ethics kind class. of, I think, think that that kind of thinking is going to get us into trouble. <laughs> so think? before we go, yeah, go too much farther, let me bring in one other thing. This is really what, what got me thinking about doing a class about this, because I invite you to, to do everyone to do some exploring about this. So one of the things that we've known and we've, you know, are in our own family and everybody, and when we buy food, you can avoid genetically modified foods. If you don't believe in the system that does it, don't believe in the chemicals that have been sprayed on it, which is about 90% of them. And I'm generalizing, but that's really the truth. If you don't want to, if you, you know, don't like the idea, the ethics behind it, don't think that we should be, you know, playing God with the genetic makeup until we know what we're doing. If any of those things bother you, you could buy the only way to know for sure there wasn't you know there are non-gmo labels that started around but the only way to be really sure was organic usda organic you know you have to pay more there's all sorts of criticisms about the program for that but that was one of the firewalls well on july 17th this year u.s agriculture secretary he's under secretary greg eibach testified before the House Agricultural Subcommittee that plants grown with the help of genetically modified organisms and gene editing could be allowed to be certified organic in the future. That's what he was bringing to the committee. And so there it goes. If that happens, what does organic mean? That would be one of the questions I would have. <laughs> if it doesn't mean, you know, non-GMO. And so this is good. This is kicking off a national debate. And if you're immediately Immediately, I feel threatened about that the way I was in some ways. You can go to the Cornucopia website, Cornucopia Institute, great, you know, environmental think tank that's been around for a long time, almost my whole productive life. And they've done some really great projects. They have started a petition that's going planetary to keep, it says, no genetic engineering in organic. And so you can um, sign your name right away. You can sign up and see how you can help with a reaction to that before it even gets started. Because as I said before, with this current administration, I don't think this is a far-fetched idea for these guys. As organic becomes an $80 billion a year industry, money, money talks now. You know, they, they're they arguing that consumers deserve to have what they want. And what they want are apples that don't brown and onions that don't make you cry. Two of the things they're talking about with gene editing. So, Well, that's very interesting about the onions. I hadn't heard that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you that know, was one of the, yeah. Go ahead. That was one of the. Well, just turn off the gene. As Steve Peters from a Seed Revolution Now once said, he was an employee at Native Seed Search. And we were talking about this years ago. He said, what's wrong with crying? <laughs> when, when you slice your onions. I mean, what are we trying to do really, you know, to the world? Maybe, you know, maybe we should leave some of this stuff alone. That was sort of our thing. What's wrong with crying? So yeah, that, you know, who knows what kind of world we're going into and you can see, see it being pushed at this level even. So that's a really kind of scary thing. 
So Yeah. And once again, I just want to reiterate what I said earlier, and that's that I don't necessarily know whether genetically modified or CRISPR is a bad thing. My biggest challenge with it is how they just take it out into the public domain, like with the mosquitoes. Great. You know, you are right on. So let me make one more point tonight, and then I'll take all the questions that people want. But my other point is that do you know that in China, the first children have been born that have been genetically modified using CRISPR? Genetically modified humans, gene edited. Wow. Did you know that, Greg? I did not know that. And the, and the scientist is thinking about doing it again and said, yeah, I'd do it again. And what he was trying to genetically modify them for, he tried to turn off the gene that allows HIV to live in a body. So it was for a good idea. It's possible, he says, probable. In fact, he set out to prove it, that all humans born from now on could be gene edited and not have HIV. And that's just the start of their whole disease thing. Wow, really great idea. Well, about six months later, and and I will have links to these articles in both science and in nature, two pretty substantially accepted scientific journals worldwide that talk about this because they're writing stories about it now. But about six months later, somebody did some research and started looking into what was going on and says that it is really possible that not only did he modify them to be resistant to HIV by turning off this gene, but that causes other things to happen. Oops, that he didn't think about that are probably going to happen. And the number one of them being it enhanced their brain. In other words, they're going to be smarter, probably. Oh, and that's what the Nature article. So now this is in motion. So if you think this stuff is in the future, if you have problems with a lack of regulation, can we regulate it? Now, a scientist in Russia just a couple of months ago announced he's starting into this. I'm going to start doing this. If there's a guy in China doing it, I know I'll be safe. I'm going to be even safer than him. I'll be transparent or whatever. But I think we need to start doing this right now. And then just last week, an article came out about DARPA. DARPA is the U.S. military research arm that does all sorts. They're the people that actually invented the Internet to begin with, the basic ideas of it. Uh-huh. You know, to, and that was an idea around design a communication system that could survive a nuclear war. That was their design criteria. So you could bomb any part of it, and the information going around it in a neural network could still be passed around. Well, that's what the modern Internet is. That's where that idea came from. Well, now what DARPA wants to do, they've been reading the news. They read the same article you did about Brazil and releasing genetically modified mosquitoes, and they read about China and genetically and gene editing, we'll call it, human babies, embryos. So their idea is to gene edit soldiers so they're resistant completely to mosquito. How's that for an idea? So they could send them into battle in tropical places. That's just an article that came out, right? So somewhere, and you can't really hold DARPA. You know, maybe it's happening, maybe it isn't. We'll never know. It's always top secret. Mm -hmm. But I liked the idea of what it represented to me was that we're human beings. We're unregulated. We're really creative. We've got a new tool. What can we do next? And I think that's where my greatest fears come long term around all of this is the weaponizing of it with desperate, you know, nations that are running out of resources. And I think that to read that even our military has has at least considered some of these ideas is a really scary idea. So I'll just leave it at that, you know. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna keep eating organic food. I'm gonna learn as much as I can about CRISPR. I don't support it. I don't support anybody any of the agricultural products that are being used. Probably are coming out that will come out from that simply because of another reason. And we're gonna talk about this on one of the other shows. Is about patenting. They're owned. Nobody's going to do this kind of research and spend the money unless they own the outcome. Right. And I just don't believe that seeds and agricultural, you know, reproductive reproduction should be owned by anybody. I think it just keeps us from getting down the road to what where we really need to be, which is with everybody getting involved so that we can create a really resilient system. So anytime you close that off, and all of these things are, are that way. So just on a systemic level, I, I just don't support the whole idea of it. It's largely for industrial agriculture. It's largely for commodities largely supports chemical companies. And for those reasons, I don't support it. But inside of all of that, I'm just fascinated as to how fast the news is moving these oh, days yeah. and all this stuff happening, you know, so. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Well, that's some. Uh, that's more information than I knew. <laughs> there was a lot of data there that was like, wow, okay. And it's going fast. And, you know, and we've seen the conversations. I've seen the conversations around the ethics of it, you know, and just, we need to stand back and pause, I think. Yeah, we do. I was on a panel once arguing over GMOs when I was at, at the University of Arizona, when I was the director at Native Seed Search. And a professor who teaches biotech at the university was there. And he made some really great points. There's a lot to learn in this. And I won't get into the arguments. But one of the things he said at the end of the evening, which I thought was really telling, is that Europe is way more regulatory at this point. And that they've largely employed what they call the precautionary principle. In other words, if you come up with new tools and new technologies and new science, blow even if it has blow mind potentials, like every child being born doesn't have to, you could never be faced with HIV or would get malaria, you know, by uh, gene editing mosquitoes. Those are noble goals. He said, even if you have a really noble goal like that, they are much better at being cautious at first in their regulatory system and rolling these things out slower so that we make sure that there's no unintended consequences. He just said that Europe is much better at that than we yeah. are in this country. And I would agree. We do not have a regulatory regimen set up in this country to be playing with this kind of fire at this time. I just don't believe that. And I'd, I'd entertain questions or somebody wants to argue that. <laughs> yeah. at some well, and we're, not, and we're not about arguing. We're about yeah. educating. So, yeah. so I, I just yeah. uh, looked up the precautionary principle, the definition. This is something that really needs to be uh, brought to light. So I'm glad you brought it up. It's the principle that the introduction of a new product or process whose ultimate effects are disputed or unknown should be resisted. It has mainly been used to prohibit the importation of genetically modified organisms and food. So there you go. Yeah, because we don't know, you know, really, we don't know what the results are going to be. We have some really great geneticists. I mean, you know, Dr. Carol Depe, I bring up on this show a lot, who taught genetics at Harvard for 25 years and then wrote a really great book that, for us um, seed savers called How to Breed Your Own um, Backyard Garden Vegetables. And Paul Stamets is another person that, you know, has gained a lot of notoriety with his work in mushrooms. Very smart man. Alan Capular, another geneticist now. He was a nuclear physicist, but he's been a plant breeder his whole productive life. And they all kind of come around one thing is that we just don't know enough about genes and DNA yet on a really basic level to say that even gene editing is safe. It may be that turning off a gene could have vast consequences that we haven't thought about. Right. That everything changes whenever you change any gene in a plant. And I know Dr. Depe talks about this with flavor. 
that, you know, she's really kind of tuning her work into trying to uh, breed vegetables that taste really good in her backyard. And, you know, I've heard her say that you, you tweak even one thing, say it's for cold tolerance or, or heat tolerance, or, you know, you're selecting things out of your yard, you know, out of your garden so that it will work better there. But every time you change the genetic structure, even a little, you're changing flavor and flavors yeah. throughout the whole plant. So that's an unintended consequence. And I just don't see that kind of thinking being being applied, you know, being to addressed. some of this stuff yet. So yeah, yeah, being addressed yet. Yeah, it's really interesting. Oh well, there you have it. So we do have some questions. None of them have to do with the uh, conversation of this evening. So well, that's okay. Is, maybe we planted some seeds for that. Planted, there you go for next month. By the way, everybody, we yeah. do this once a month, usually the third or fourth Tuesday of the month, uh, where Bill and I get together and just chat about what's going on in seeds. Uh, Elizabeth from Woodland, California, says, why do you recommend pulling off the stamen the night before you pollinate the plant? Why can't you just do it at the same time, like early morning? What are your thoughts on that? Because I don't know, and I don't know okay. that you, rec- you recommend pulling off the stamen the night before, so maybe it's somebody well, else that does that. Let me give um, Elizabeth just a little bit of context, so that, um, and maybe she can answer the question herself. The whole idea beha- behind hand pollination is um, to control pollen. Actually, that's the idea behind all of plant breeding, unless you're doing gene editing, right? The only way that we people out here, the little people I call us, the important people, can change the genetics of a plant is to control pollen through sexual reproduction. And so by removing stamens, you're removing, you know, half the equation of certain genetic characteristics that are being carried in the pollen of a certain male right? And you're trying to get rid of that. And so you can do it the night before, but you don't necessarily have to. All you really need to do is make sure that that pollen doesn't get to the stigmatic surface of the plant you're trying to pollinate. And so if it's a perfect flower, sometimes those stamens are right next to the stigmatic surface. And it does make sense to clip those little guys off. And I'm talking about largely self-pollinating plants can be that way. That's like tomatoes and peppers. They're really tiny, or it can be like beans and peas. You'd want to pay attention to that. Cabbage family plant is slightly outcrossing, but it can pollinate itself. And so if you look at it through a microscope or, you know, a dissecting scope, you can see the little anthers. You can cut all of those guys on. And so usually the fertilization process takes place in about a 24 hour cycle for each you know, stigma for the stigmatic surface where the, where the pollen goes and then that grows a little root and it gets down into the ovary and it transfers the DNA, the chromosomes. So if you take them off the night before, new ones aren't going to grow that night. You've done it for the day. And the next morning is usually when pollination takes place. So we go to the next best thing. And primarily, those are what I would call land races. Those are widely adapted, open pollinated seeds that have been through the mill. They have proven themselves to be widely adapted over large areas and wide climates in the United States over decades. And some of those treasures are still around. They're things like black-seeded Simpson, lettuce, and golden acre cabbage, things that are just treasures. And so we source those from places that have as much integrity and are as close to the farmers as possible. We get them from the people that contract the farmers to grow them, okay? And if somebody really wants to know where everything is actually grown, you know, we don't know that, but we could probably help send you on an investigative journalist. Uh-huh. 
Exactly. Thing to find it because that we're all about that kind of transparency. So, but what the goal of our event here and why we've had to do it this way is to get thousands of pounds of seeds in the hands of an urban population, which largely lost its seed saving tradition. Yeah. And over the last five years, thank you, Greg, and the urban farm and through these seed ups, we're getting hundreds, if not thousands of people in that area that are growing and saving their own seeds, starting with these varieties. And it's really the best place to start. So, so great question and a great event. Yeah. I do want to apologize. Uh, our technology went awry. I was able to fix it so you all can hear us again. This was all recorded. That's the good news. And uh, we'll have it available here next month. So with that, I just let's wrap it up. Any other final thoughts, Bill? Oh, final thoughts. I have mm-hmm. never been more excited and more positive about what is happening on small scales with seed yeah. saving and locally. And that's what keeps me sane when I start reading about gene editing and RNA sprays and some of the other new technologies that are coming down the pike. And it seems like the world's dividing. And so I'm just going more into our local world because, you know, something really interesting happened to me. I went to the Tucson Plant Breeding Institute, which is using quantitative analysis and supercomputers in plant breeding. They're using DNA sequencing, and it's just this incredible new high-tech way of trying to move whole populations of crops in different directions. And I won't get into the whole thing, but at the beginning of the course, I was with 35 students from all over the world that are learning these cutting-edge techniques. At the beginning of the course, the professor was pointing out the problems with it, the limits to this kind of a technology. And he said, you know what our biggest problem might be? The biggest problem with this kind of uh, system is that we're not going to have access to the diversity that we'll need to start with, the genetic diversity. And if you go home and save your own seeds and save them around something that you really love, and you take them down to your local seed library or seed exchange and share them with people there so that they can do the same thing and together we can create community gene pools that are adapted to where we are, you are working on his problem. That's how I look at it. We are fundamental to what's going on in world agriculture. No matter what scale you believe on, this is what we've lost, most of the diversity, and this is what we're going to need as we face the changes in the future. So that's my ending thought. You know, I'm trying to tie together these two worlds. Let's just save more seeds, all right? (laughs) Thanks again for another great evening, Greg. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.